today uh, I want to talk about the flow of God's goodness. But before that, I want to talk about something that is going to happen starting tomorrow, which is our 10 days of, as we call it, consecration. It's a time in which we want to set our, ourselves apart for God. So we're starting 10 days of prayer and fasting. During the week, I sent an email to everyone. If you have not received it, please get in touch with me. Within that, there is a guideline to fasting, explaining why we're fasting, explaining different types of biblical fasts. And then there's also a handout for those who are not necessarily familiar with the spiritual discipline of fasting. I also created a handout which is called Plan Your Fast. And within that, I'm encouraging you for as many days as you plan to fast, to think about the spiritual purpose for your fasting, find Bible verses that will help and aid in your fasting during the day, and then get on with it, really. So the, the, the schedule for the next 10 days will be as follows. From Monday to Friday, we're going to have morning and evening times of prayer. In the morning, it's going to be on Zoom only, from 6.15 a.m., yes, a.m., to 6.45 a.m., half an hour, and... The reason it's there is because I know some of you work in the city or need to wake up really early. If you have time to even connect in while you're driving or while you're uh, on your way to work, just connect for half an hour. We're going to be on Zoom. I'm probably going to be at home just praying together with you. So please join in. I know it's early. So if you can, please, 6.15 to 6.45 a.m. from Monday to Friday, every single day. At the same time, every single evening this week, this coming, we're going to meet here in this place from 7.30 p.m. for the time of praise and worship. And our worship team is going to be present here as well, where we come together as a church to pray and to praise God for what he's doing. Meanwhile, every single day, I want to encourage you to do a private fast. As well. If you remember a few weeks back, I talked about how some of the fasting needs to be done in secret. So with that in mind, if, we have, if you use your plan, your fast document that has been emailed to you, maybe I'm imagining you are in your lunch break where instead of eating, you are fasting. Maybe go somewhere, whether it's a walk or somewhere where you can be alone and just focus on your, the, the PDF that you will hopefully download up. Uh, print out, and then just focus on fasting privately. Maybe there's stuff that God is challenging you to set, consecrate for. Maybe there's breakthrough you want to see in your life. One of the things that I'm really looking forward to is to do a fast of repentance, and I'm going to commit for all the 10 days to do this, though I'm not saying I'm going to not eat for the 10 days. I say there's all sorts of different fastings that we can do. So every day, ideally, if you come to every single fasting and prayer meeting, you could pray up to three times a day. Morning and evening together, in mid-afternoon, on your own, or it's just between you and God. And I think together, if we can set the next 10 days as a church together, we want to see what God is going to do in us personally, but also through us as a church. Now, on Saturday, we're going to only have a prayer breakfast, not breakfast, we have coffee and cookies, but we're going to meet here at 9.30 a.m., to pray together, and then on Sunday, we're going to pray in the back room from 10 and during the service. And then the following Monday to Wednesday, it's going to be uh, 6.15 a.m., 7.30 p.m., a private fast for you to do on your own during the week. Yeah, it's all in the document as well, but again, I'm happy to speak to you after, as, after that. Then after these 10 days of prayer and fasting, which will end on Wednesday the 21st, we have um, encounter as well. So this is our monthly 
time of uh, prayer and especially encouraging the Holy Spirit to speak and use us. So on Friday, the 23rd, we're going to have an encounter at 7.30 p.m. here. It's a lot. It's all in. It's once a year as well. But I pray that as we develop this practice, we're going to do it even personally, once a week, praying and fasting together, uh, moving forward. But I want to encourage you to start praying even to the end. I know some of you have already prayed into this. Say, God, what is it that you want me to consecrate for you over the next 10 days? What is it that you believe God for in your personal life? And what is it that we believe God for in our lives as Vision Church, as we're still relatively at the beginning of this year? Amen? Great. So let's get on with fasting. Okay, God is going to reward our fasting. So as I said today, I want to talk about the flow of God's goodness. And I want to read from 1 Thessalonians 5, from 15, which says this, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good. And this is the key message today. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Lord, I want to pray today that as we talk about the flow of your goodness, Lord, that our hearts will be recipients of your goodness and grace today, Lord. And I pray that even as Matt said earlier, Lord, give us ears to hear and a heart to receive what you have for us today, Lord, through the preaching of your word. Amen. You may know that the Bible speaks about this man that once approached Jesus, and as he was walking, this man fell on his knees before him, and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says, Why do you call me good? An interesting question from Jesus. Why do you call me good? And Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. Now, in saying this, Jesus was not suggesting that he wasn't good. Because you know and I know, Jesus is always good. Even as you reflect on your life so far, even through the highs and lows, you can always say that Jesus is good. The reason Jesus answered this way was because he knew how much the human concept of goodness needs stretching. We may not necessarily understand what goodness is about. We throw that word good around and barely even grasping its meaning. The concept of good for us is quite different than the way Jesus understood it when he said that the Father is good. We basically tend to think that I'm good because I could have been worse. (laughs) I'm good because others are worse. Or I'm good because I can get people to feel good about me and think that I am good. If someone thinks I'm good, Therefore, I am good. But it's not quite the same as actually being good, is it? Even when selfishness or pride isn't the driving motivation, we often settle into a limited definition of good simply because we lack experience of something better still. If we are to compare ourselves to God, would we still say that we are good? And even within that, God is calling us to be a conduit of his goodness in our lives. Again and again, the Bible declares the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
And the message of the scriptures is that God alone is good in the absolute sense. In fact, even the Anglo-Saxon word for good comes from God. Just remove one O and you have God. In its original definition, goodness means godliness. And earlier generations understood that if you wanted to teach your kids to be good or to strive after goodness yourself, then you must keep in your view this attribute of God. God is good. And if we've seen any deterioration of goodness in our time, and I think we can sort of say that we have experienced people are not as good anymore, it is because we have turned our gaze away from God and forgotten what goodness looks like. Even though we, want, we all want it, we all want to see it in others and in our lives, we may have forgotten what goodness is about. Or taste and see that the Lord is good. So you see, without seeing and tasting God, we don't experience true goodness. Therefore, we cannot reflect it in our lives. God is calling us to be a conduit of his goodness. And I want to say that God is good. In only eight days, I'll be 34 years old. But I've never valued God's goodness as much as I do now, truly. God is so good, yes, to me, but God is good in himself, right? God is good all the time. God is good when news is bad. God is good when people are different. God is good when people are bad. And I value God's goodness the most when people treat me badly. That's when you realize that you have a refuge in God when he's always good to you. When evil knocks on the door of my heart, I learn to take refuge in God's goodness. And I promise you that I am presented with opportunities to not be good every single week of my life. There's always something happening. There's always something being said. There's always something that I'm put in a position where I say, God, I don't feel like being good, but you're calling me to be good. And also, especially as I know that I get to minister, I have this opportunity every single Sunday. My heart needs to be in the right place, because otherwise I speak from a place of hurt and from a place that sort of speaks poison from inside. My point is that it's hard to be good, which is why I don't want you to take goodness for granted. And whenever you meet a person, I can truly say that they are good. Value them, because it's not, it's not easy to be good when you're always presented with opportunities to be evil or to do evil. But verses like the one we read today are hard to digest and to put in practice. Always seek to do good. Man, God, like take a break. <laughs> Always <laughs> seek to do good. You see, God's attributes don't evolve or devolve with time, right? He is always good. Because God is always the same. And since God is always good, we must be the conduit of His goodness to those around us. Which is why today I want to speak about the flow of God's goodness. And basically there's three points I want to talk about. His goodness, the God's, God's goodness flows from the Holy Spirit, through you, and for others. Right? God's goodness flows from the Holy Spirit, through you, and for others. So the first point is God's goodness flows from the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21, do not quench 
the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from some forms of evil. No, okay? <laughs> from every form of evil. The most important relationship in the life of a believer is the relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because if you get that right, all your other relationships will be positively impacted and they tend to fall in line with God's will. If the Holy Spirit is quenched, then it is only natural that despising prophecies will follow, as well as a lack of abstinence from all forms of evil. And when the word quench is used in the Bible, it's speaking about suppressing fire. Jesus describes hell as a place where fire would not be quenched. And then another part it says that we quench the fiery darts of the enemy by putting on the armor of God. So when we talk about quenching the Holy Spirit, we have the image of suppressing fire that represents the expression of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. The Holy Spirit wants to express and reveal himself in the life of God's people. That's your life and my life. And it is fascinating and a bit scary to think that a believer has the power to restrict or release the Holy Spirit's work in his or her life and in the church. That's why I'm constantly encouraging you, even with this new format of our service, towards the end after we start worshiping, if the Holy Spirit puts something on your heart, please come to me, shoulder tap me, ask me, I'm going to wait together with you, what the Holy Spirit said, and then I'm going to invite you to speak it to build up the church. I want to remind you that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not just for a certain spiritual elite people, because they don't exist, But then it's not just for me. We together are called to build up the church. That's why sometimes goodness looks like I'm going to do what God wants me to do for the good of those around me. And you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit with something that you're going to build a church with if you apply and if you use. We quench the Holy Spirit when we don't allow him to reveal himself and his will in and through our lives. And for the Thessalonians, through whom the letter is written, this was not easy to accept. Like, think about how would the Holy Spirit express himself when the believers back then were facing those who killed their families because they they were persecuted for their faith. When Paul writes to them, he knew that some of those who were about to read this letter have been suffering because someone murdered their dear ones. And Paul says, always seek to do good. Someone hurts you and yet God steps in and he says, always seek to do good. What would come out of a believer's mouth and heart if you would allow the Holy Spirit to lead conversations with those who committed injustice against them? We quench the Holy Spirit when we refuse to rely on him and his personality in every day of our lives. And quenching the Holy Spirit may not be a decision we take, but rather a lifestyle in which we drift away and we place ourselves at the will of our lives. That is also quenching the Holy Spirit. Let me do it. Let me run the car. Let me drive. Let me set the destination. But we're saying, no, Holy Spirit, you take the first place in my life. We quench the Holy Spirit when we see him as an impersonal force. 
that is more like a genie in a lamp whose purpose is to agree with everything we believe and desire instead of seeing him as the one who guides our lives. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he said he's going to send us the promised Holy Spirit who among many other things is going to be our guide. And I like, especially for those who know a bit of Latin or Italian, guide and guida, which is an Italian word, means drive. In other words, we need to let the Holy Spirit, part of his role is to drive us, not as a chauffeur, but as the one who sets the destination of our lives. And we need to let him guide our lives. If we don't pursue what is good in our relationship with the Holy Spirit, we will not produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit, part of it being what? Goodness. That's how we're saying it comes from the Holy Spirit. And that's how we avoid every form of evil, like our text exhorts us to. But it is impossible to avoid believing and being influenced by other forms of evil if we do not allow the Holy Spirit to express himself in and through our lives. We reflect God's goodness when we pursue what is good in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. This means that he leads and we follow Not the other way around. There is only one Holy Spirit and he doesn't have your name. (laughs) Okay, it's not Holy Vlad. It's the Holy Spirit and he guides. Stir up the gift of God which is in you. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6. And the verb means to literally stir the fire again in your life. Dear brothers and sisters, we need to stir the fire of the Holy Spirit in us again. We need to let the fire of the Holy Spirit to fuel our decision making. We need to let the fire of the Holy Spirit guide every step we take. And we do need to let the fire of the Holy Spirit consume every form of evil that has influenced our values and behavior. We need to let the Holy Spirit work freely and powerfully in and through our lives. We truly need to create time. In the busyness of our lives to listen to his voice by reading the Bible and meditating upon it. And I hope you're going to do this over the next 10 days. A combination between the word of God, meditation and prayer. That's when the Holy Spirit is going to work powerfully in our lives. We need to know that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, his presence must be visibly manifested in our lives and through our lives, not only at church but even at work and whatever you do, do for the glory of God. We need to understand that as long as we invest in our relationship with him and always seek to do what is good for this relationship, then whether we are at home, at school, at work, or on our own in different contexts, you and I are carriers of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Wherever we are, he is there with us. God is always good. Therefore, we must always pursue his goodness. And that starts with pursuing a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. God's goodness flows from the Holy Spirit. The second step is that God's goodness flows through you. What an amazing thing to think about. Verses 16 to 18 say this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's how goodness flows through us. Imagine if you actually meet a person that is always rejoicing. A person who we know prays without ceasing, both in the secret place and in public. A person who is grateful and thankful in all circumstances. We will naturally and rightly assume she is good. This is what a good person looks like. 
And I don't know about you, but I struggle with this. I struggle doing exactly that. I agree with it. I believe it's good for me. But if I'm honest, I find it hard to live a life defined by joy and gratefulness while praying without ceasing, especially in the many moments when things around me are difficult and painful. It's not easy to do exactly that. But these three simple verses, it's not only that we must rejoice, but we must rejoice always. We don't only need to pray, but we must pray without ceasing. And on top of that, I need to give thanks in some circumstances, like in all circumstances. Always and without ceasing, it's a lot of times. There's a lot of circumstances. And it feels like, God, what is it that you're calling me to do? But I look at them and I don't see these things as suggestions. To rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. God is not approaching God and like, look, if you don't mind, give it a try. Give it a try because you have to, but because God is calling you to be a conduit of his goodness. And without these three things, you cannot be that good person that you aspire to, because I know you do. You don't even need to be a Christian to aspire to be a good person. But with Christ and with Holy Spirit living in us, we can truly become good people. God wants his people to be joyful. He wants his people to be praying. And he wants his people to be thankful in all circumstances. You see, the Christian's joy is not rooted in outward circumstances. But in the blessings that are his because he or she is in Christ. Nehemiah 8.10, you know it very well. It's not there, I'll show you, show you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I should have it now. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And strength is not necessarily defined by our ability to face difficulties. But from a biblical point of view, joy is strength. Strength is joy. From a biblical point of view, joy is strength. To be joyful is to be strong. And when we think about someone being strong, the image you have is someone that is a bit aggressive, forward inclining, ready to go to war. And yet the Bible says that strong people are joyful people. Why? Because nothing touches them. Nothing can mess with their happiness. Joyful people are strong people. Why? Happiness is an emotion that we feel based on our circumstances. It goes as easy as it comes. You know very well that happiness is an outward event that affects us inwardly. Joy, on the other hand, is not an emotion, though we express it with emotions, but joy is not an emotion. Why? Because the Bible defines joy as part of the fruit of the Spirit, with goodness. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's even the first one. You see, it's a spiritual fruit. In other words, you don't need to force yourself to be joyful. Just place yourself and root yourself in the Holy Spirit. And in time, you will progressively bear the fruit. Part of it being joy. And by the way, to remind, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit that has nine parts. Okay? Joy and goodness are part of that fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And it's interesting that it says that it's a fruit. Because joy, joy may not come easy in your life because it is a fruit. In the moment you planted the seed of a pear tree, you don't wait for a second and then all of a sudden you have pears. 
And the same with joy and with goodness in our case. And all the fruit of the Spirit. It takes time. That's why it's a fruit. It's a process. That's why we must constantly be under the influence, if you want, in the good way of the Holy Spirit. We must be rooted in the Holy Spirit. Joy springs out of our relationship with the Holy Spirit. So it is in vain that you try to be good or joyful without the Holy Spirit. Because you'll only be happy and that comes and goes. Joyful people are spirit-filled people. And unlike happiness that can be lost when something negative happens to us, joy can never be lost regardless of our outward negative events because our joy is both in Christ and from the Holy Spirit. Our joy is in Christ and from the Holy Spirit. If I am in Christ and I am pursuing a relationship with the Holy Spirit, I will rejoice always, I will pray continually and I will give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because even though everything around me is meant to hurt me, nothing and no one can steal away the joy that I have in knowing who I am in Christ. And knowing the joy that comes from the time that I invest in my personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's why we pray continually. Because His presence dwells in us continually. That's why we must be thankful in all circumstances because in all circumstances I am in Him and He is in me and I am never alone. God loves you more than you could ever love yourself. God is kinder to you than you could ever be kind to yourself. And God cares more about you than you care about yourself. And this is for me encouraging, especially in the moments when things around me or people around me seem to be bad or evil. The best thing you can do for yourself is to hide in Christ. Evil can't find you there. It is in that place of hiding in Christ that you draw from his strength and from his joy. Your circumstances will change, but how God feels about you will never change. You cannot shock God with anything. What others say about you may change, but what he said about you will never change. You are his beloved daughter. You are his beloved son. He has a plan and he has a future for your life. He will bless you with joy even when others will curse you with pain. And that's powerful. And sometimes we must not place on people the expectation to bless us. Because only God can truly bless us in a way that it transforms our lives. He will bless you with joy even when others will curse you with pain. His arms will be wide open to welcome you even though others may cross their arms and never welcome you into their lives. God's heart towards prodigals and for those who are away from him is also this kind of attitude of open arms come. God waits for you patiently. So as his child, we must run to him. God knows, Jesus knows what it feels like to be in your shoes. That's why he invites you to abide in him. Who you are, whose you are, and why you are can all be found in his word and in nurturing your intimate relationship with him. Let the goodness of God flow, not only in your life, but through your life. May his goodness be like a flowing river and not like a still lake. And you know this image, you know this illustration. If God's goodness flows from the Holy Spirit, it doesn't stop with us. Because if you take it all for yourself, it will become a lake that eventually turns into a pond that not even ducks swim in. God's goodness is always meant to flow through people like you 
and me. So rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. That is how God's goodness flows through our lives. This is the will of Christ Jesus for you. And then finally, naturally, God's goodness flows for others. From the Holy Spirit, through you, for others. Verse 15 said, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But again, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. When was the last time you watched the news and the main story was one of forgiveness? I don't see that on BBC, Sky News. I don't see this in UK or America's news. There used to be a moment when I was a child I remembered stories of forgiveness, especially by victims of Holocaust. I remember them. But now when I turn the news, I see war, I see conflict, and I don't see forgiveness. God says, always seek to do good. Maybe this is a message for, for Eastern European, Eastern Europe and for Middle East at the moment. Always seek to do good. When was the last time that your favorite talk show host or famous person you follow has talked about repaying evil with good? When was the last time you have seen a televised gathering of people who hug their oppressors? We don't see that. I think when we were younger, we saw some of that. And that is slightly scary because all, if all we learn about the world and all we learn about goodness is from our screens, then we will not learn what goodness is all about. Because God is the only one who is absolutely good. Kindness is not promoted. Goodness is not encouraged. Forgiveness is not desirable. This is the world we live in. And the world in which revenge is promoted, repaying evil with good is a controversial message, to say the least. God is always good. Therefore, Christians must reflect God's goodness by pursuing what is good in their relationship with others, as well with one another and to everyone, always seek to do good. And what this verse implies in saying, see to it that no one repays evil with evil, is that evil will be done to us. It's right there, right? Seek that no one repays anyone with evil for evil. So God is like, look, things will happen to you. People will judge you. People will hurt you. People will criticize you. People will do stuff. So seek to it that you do not repay evil with evil. But not only that, but always seek to do good. That is what he's encouraging us to do. Evil takes many forms when it's done against us. It's, it can be physical hurt. It comes in the forms of emails or texts aimed to hurt us. It comes in the form of injustice of all kinds. It comes in the form of betrayal, gossip, and lies. And it comes in form of jealousy or toxic behavior. And one of the most painful examples of evil done to someone in, in the Bible, apart from Jesus, is in the relationship that King Saul had with David. And you, you may know about it a bit. To give you a quick context, around the time that David was born, Saul is chosen by Israel to be king. And when David turned about 10 to 12 years old, he is anointed as future king of Israel by Samuel, who was a prophet. 
And Samuel said that God has chosen David as king of Israel because David was what? A man after God's own heart. Meanwhile, Saul leads Israel in their war against the Philistines. Now David turns up on this battlefield literally to bring cheese to his brothers. There was nothing spiritual about his intentions. He just obeyed his father. So he goes there to bring some cheese to his brothers who were part of the army. But when he hears this giant Goliath blaspheming God's name, he cannot just continue with serving cheese. He then convinces King Saul to let him face Goliath. And we know that David is victorious. David then becomes the commander of the army. While Saul harbors jealousy against David because of the praises received from the people and because of David's success. God was on his side. Later on, Saul threatens and tries to kill David. He chases David down, but David with his people run for their lives. Now in his pursuit of David, Saul and his army stop to rest in some cave. That as it happens, David and his people were already hiding in that cave, sort of in the back of it. And that's when we come to 1 Samuel 24, verses 4 to 7. It says this, Then David, so the image there, there's a huge cave. David and his army are all the way to the back, hiding. And meanwhile, Saul and his army comes, and they're resting. So it says, Then David arose and stealthily, right, <laughs> cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, I like this, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, speaking of Saul, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. In other words, even though David was called to be king of Israel, he still recognized Saul, who was not chosen by God, but by the people, still recognized him as the Lord's anointed. An evil man who sought to kill him, he was literally on his way to kill David. He wasn't even aware that David was in the same cave as him. And he says there, so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. I encourage you to read the entire context. It's amazing and so powerful. But what would you have done in David's situation? That is the question. You have an opportunity to avenge yourself against someone who chases you down to kill you. And there he is, laying defenseless in his sleep right in front of you, right before you. More than that, your friends <laughs> quote scriptures telling you that it is God's will for you to kill him. This is a sign that God wants to deliver you from the oppression of your enemy. You know that if you do it, you will be free and you will become king. That man that you could kill right then and there is the only thing standing before you, between you and the throne. Or between you and the fulfillment of God's plan for your life you know all that he said and you know all that he did and you know what he might do if you let him live what would you do 
You may think, well, that doesn't apply because I'll never kill someone who hurt me. Thank God. Well, good. <laughs> Hopefully, you never contemplate murder. But maybe, just maybe, in our days, we commit murder in our hearts by fostering anger, resentment, and bitterness against those who harmed us. Which is why at the beginning of my sermon I told you it's hard to be good. Because I tend to harbor a lot of resentment in my heart. And I just want to be honest. I don't act on it. I do not send the text. I do not have the conversation. But it's there. And I recognize it. And I feel how it poisons my soul. Because I just harbor it within me. And maybe we need to repent of the insults we speak against others. Because it's easy to do it when we're surrounded by people who say, you're right in feeling this. You're right in doing this. God is with you. God is for you. We commit, and excuse my, my word, but we commit emotional murder when we use words to destroy people's lives. We commit social and virtual murder when we cancel people we disagree with. That's something you do see in the news. But you see, avenge of all forms is prohibited by God. You are not to take revenge against those who hurt you. And just because you have an opportunity to avenge yourself, it doesn't mean it's God's will. It doesn't mean it's God who placed it before you. And the thing that you found it in your life for sure, as I did, if you look for justification to harm others, you will find it. If the lens is through which you look at life and everything is like you want, to, uh, you want justification to harm others, you'll find it. You'll find it when you take scriptures out of context, like David's friends. It is the Lord's will. You'll find it. You'll find it in the words of your helpful friends. You'll find it in the posts that famous people share. You'll find justification in the news, and you'll find it on social media. But let me be clear in saying that you will never find justification to avenge yourself with God. He does not allow you to do anything like this if you are his child. And David understood something that our society doesn't understand nor believes. The roles of judge and avenger are already taken by God and he wants to delegate. In many ways we are called to be like God. For example, be good. But God is a judge and an avenger. And he doesn't say, be like me in that as well. The roles of judge and avenger are already taken by God. And he will not delegate. And there's no other opening in the future. There's only one role and it's taken by God. We can find no justification in avenging ourselves against those who harmed us. On the contrary, not only are we to not take revenge ourselves, but to turn the other cheek and to forgive and to actually what? Seek to do good to all. Retaliation must have been a strong temptation for the believers in Thessalonica. But Christian teaching is not meant to be applied only when circumstances are easy. We are not to obey God only when we feel like we can do it. When we read always seek to do good, that means something like pursue vigorously, which is also a word used for persecute. The same vigor and passion that others have to harm you is the passion and vigor you must have in seeking, in pursuing 
to do what is good. The same passion we may have when speaking against one another. The same passion we may have when we insult others must be the same passion when we bless them. When we speak kindly about them. We must vigorously pursue to bless those who curse us. We must pursue to love those who hate us. We must vigorously pursue to return good, to return evil with good, even when we suffer. Pursuing what is good is a duty that needs to be exercised within the spiritual family, so to each other, and to also outsiders, which includes everyone else. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Goodness is not to be restricted. It is to be our attitude to all. And since God is always good, we must always pursue his goodness in our relationship with others. And that includes both believers and unbelievers as well. And I'll finish with these two verses from Psalm. It's one of my favorite things ever. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Fair question. But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Every breath we take is an evidence of God's goodness because He does not keep a record of your sins. He doesn't pick up the stone. We've seen it on earth, in Jesus, and we see it in the Word of God. For those who come before Him, God doesn't keep a record of your sins. And I don't know about you, but I refuse to keep records God doesn't keep. And I refuse to pick up stones Jesus didn't. Especially when in my eyes they deserve it. Especially when I know that I could really advance in life by trotting over others. If God would keep a record of your sins, you wouldn't stand. And could it be that maybe some people in our lives are not standing because of the record we keep against them? That is what God is calling us to do. He doesn't want you to work as an administratorial role. You're not his PA, keeping a record of everything everyone does. That's on him. As for us, we must always seek to do good. If God was to deal with us according to our sin, we would honestly be canceled for eternity. We stand because he is good. We are forgiven because he is good. And we serve him because he is good. And you and I have people in our lives who shouldn't stand because of what they did. Unfortunately, I have a list. And by list, I don't mean of sins. But people could come to my mind and say, like, they shouldn't stand for what they said. They shouldn't stand because of what they did. I could find justification in the pain I experienced in the past. And then God says, do not keep a record of their sins. If they fall, make sure that it's not because you keep a record against them and use it against them. God has chosen to forgive you. So forgive them. 
God has chosen goodness over revenge. So be good to them. Goodness is underrated, isn't it? Be good. And that's the simplest message I want to share with you. Be good. Because God is always good. Since God is always good, we must always reflect His goodness. Because God's goodness flows from the Holy Spirit through you and doesn't stop there for others. Do not be the cork of God's goodness. Release it. Express it. Manifest it through your life. God's goodness flows from the Holy Spirit through you and for others in your life. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we come before you and the simple prayer this morning, Lord, is Lord, make us a conduit of your goodness. Because, Lord, it's not easy to be good. And I don't want to be good in a fake way. Lord, I want to be good, not polite. Lord, teach us to pursue goodness. Understanding that it flows from your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you live within us. Lord, I pray that our lives will bear the fruit of goodness. And Lord, as we're grateful that your goodness flows in our lives, Lord, I pray that it will also flow through our lives. I pray, Lord, that we'll be an example of what goodness truly looks like. I pray that we'll be good when people are evil. That we show goodness when we are cursed. That we turn the other cheek when we are hurt. And that would go the extra mile when they don't deserve it. Lord, we look to you. And I pray that like David would be men and women after your own heart. Who do not seek revenge, but trust you to avenge your holy ones. Father, once again I pray that we would live a life characterized by your goodness. Let your goodness flow from the Holy Spirit through us and for others. Amen.